This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Jason, I know you actually had a very interesting uh, an interview that ties into Uber. Uh, you sat down with the co-heads of TPG. They had some early investments in Uber. Any insight from them into what is going on and sort of how they're uh, reacting as, as early investors? Well, it's a great question. And yeah, this was a wide ranging conversation. It's in the latest issue of Bloomberg Markets magazine. And it's funny, Taylor, you know, every summer around this time, spring or summer about this time, I've gotten a chance to sit down with some of the big private equity names started with Henry Kravis a few years ago, when sort of Kravis Schwartzman, the co CEOs of Carlisle uh, last summer, and now the co CEOs of TPG. And as you mentioned, Uber is such an interesting way in because rather surprisingly to to many people and happily, at least for the moment, for a lot of TPG investors, TPG was a pretty early investor in Uber. It's not a traditional private equity play, to say the least. In fact, I went back just now to sort of check myself. So back in 2013, uh, TPG goes in at a valuation of about $3.5 billion uh, into Uber, which you know, at 120 billion, that seems amazing. But even at its current valuation, still looks pretty smart. And this speaks to TPG's whole ethos of being into the idea of disruption, looking for disruptors. Few companies have been as disruptive as Uber. And obviously, there are still some big existential questions, as you mentioned. Uh, But also this idea that maybe returns for private equity aren't going to come just from the traditional leverage buyouts, but from this growth equity uh, type of strategy. And and certainly that seems to be uh, the case here. Well, as they talk about where they want to go for more returns, I think a very interesting point that you've made in your knowledge of the space is that they have remained a partnership while a lot of their rivals have gone public. What can they do differently to stand out, to distinguish themselves as a partnership and not be public? Well, it's a great question. And I think part of the reason that they're doing that is because they're not subject to the vicissitudes, as they say, of the public market. And one of the things that the public market has become very demanding of in terms of these private equity names like Blackstone, Carlisle, KKR, Apollo, Oak Tree, all of these names that have gone public is they want more predictable earnings. And what that really means is gathering more assets up beyond private equity, whether it's hedge funds or real estate or more traditional asset management type dollars in order to make investors comfortable that they're going to see quarter on quarter, year over year growth in a very predictable way. And that doesn't happen when it comes to private equity because it's a very opportunistic type investment. And you can go a long time without having an exit and without having essentially a big distribution. So it gives them a little more flexibility. Now, on the other side of the coin, the Blackstones and the KKRs of the world would say, well, but this gives us a, a different sort of war chest. It allows us to expand. It allows us to you know, 
make people a little more liquid, uh, our employees, our founders, et cetera, allows us to make acquisitions, which a number of them have done, Blackstone most notably with GSO back in 2008. So, I mean, you can argue both ways. What TPG really says is they have been contrarians from the beginning. And remember, this is a firm that was essentially built on one of the most contrarian bets of all time, which was buying Continental Airlines Mm -hmm. in 1992 out of bankruptcy, which Jim Coulter, the co-CEO and one of the founders of TPG, said at the time was run by Frank Lorenzo, who arguably was the most hated CEO on the planet. And... Airlines were not seen as a good investment, and yet they made multiples and multiples of money there, and then they were off to the races. I love that you bring up the history of going into Continental Airlines because you're talking about a firm that has a Texas office, a San Francisco office. So you sort of get the tech feel, of course, with the investments in Uber. Um, But you also have some other opportunities as well. Like you said, their history based on airlines. Where are they finding opportunities as they go forward? Like you said, Sometimes it seems as in this market, there's so much money chasing too few deals. How do we get those returns? What sectors are we looking at? Well, and one of the really interesting moments of the interview was, you know, I pressed both Coulter and Winkleried, who's the new co-CEO. He had a long history at Goldman Sachs and then was essentially investing on his own account and then was recruited into this job to replace David Bonderman, one of the co-founders who became the chairman of the firm and is, you know, running his family office, still involved in the firm, but, you know, John Winkle Reed, really a partner uh, in the in all senses to to Jim Coulter. And I press Coulter especially on this idea of, well, you had a few bad years back in, you know, 08, 09 and 10. They were in TXU. Uh, They were a a big investor in TXU along with KKR and Goldman, uh, as a matter of fact, which will go down in history, at least for the moment, as the worst private equity deal ever. ever. It was the biggest, and then it failed utterly. They bet the wrong way on on natural gas. Uh, They invested in Washington Mutual, which went to zero. And what Coulter essentially said was, we got away from our roots. You know, we basically thought that this was a scalable business, that the way to differentiate was in bigger and bigger deals, and we were wrong. And so that was the anomaly for them, that they had to actually get back to their contrarian roots and doing either deals at an earlier stage, doing deals in unloved industries uh, like airlines, maybe retail and, and others. So they're having to really kind of press themselves on figuring out Where are other people going? And maybe we don't want to go that way. We want to zag when other people zig. You know, Jason, this is a uh, sensitive subject, so I'm going to ask you about this nicely. Uh, You do mention, of course, that TPG's, uh, one of their star managers of their growth and social impact funds was uh, William McGlashan. He, of course, was charged uh, with alleged criminal conspiracy to rig the U.S. college admissions. We should say that he is pleaded not guilty. Any insight from some of the co-heads there um, about that manager? Uh, he, he did resign. Um, any update about how that's affected the, the firm at all? 
Yeah, it it was a really interesting moment and obviously timely to talk to these guys. This is really the first time that both of them had sat down and discussed this uh, on the record. I had spent some time with John Winkle Reed at a Bloomberg conference talking about equality and diversity, and that was really at the, at the height of this. I think this was a big moment for, for the firm and a very difficult one. And I think they were shocked, legitimately shocked, and they had to make a lot of decisions, one of which was obviously to part company, part ways with Bill McGlashan, who had been, as you say, the leader of their growth fund. That was the fund that invested in Uber and Airbnb and others, as well as the Rise Fund, a social impact fund. So that was a very difficult moment. They did an internal investigation. They told investors that they could have money back if they wanted. They could rescind, the investors could, their commitments. And what they've really had to do is Jim Coulter, the co-CEO, has actually physically moved his office down to where Bill McGlashan's office was to essentially say, I'm going to lead this effort now. And so it's been a real moment of reckoning. And, you know, time will tell whether this will, um, you know, change the the culture going forward, but certainly uh, an interesting moment. Oh, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Do I, 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 do I? All right. So amid all of this turmoil, Taylor. We have to bring in some fun, Jason. Well, and it's fun, but it's also big business. As you know, golf, very much top of mind. The PGA uh, coming up, PGA Championship coming up. Dan Murphy, he's the CEO at Bridgestone. He's there with you in New York, and it's great to have you back, Dan. And listen, you're feeling good these days because Tiger Woods is hitting your golf ball. Oh, man, we're riding high. It's been a lot of fun since the Masters, uh, and I talked to you last. We've had a good time. Yeah, and so what are you expecting? Give us a preview for what we may see uh, with the PGA uh, Championship. Well, it's just down the road. You know, I was just looking at the weather because it's nasty in New York today, but it's going to get nice. And that's going to be in favor of my man Tiger. So um, it's going to it's going to soften up. So it's going to play long. And um, but Tiger's ready. I've heard good things about him. Okay, so I'm going to take the bait. Talk to me about the Tiger effect. When I grew up, Tiger was sort of the pre-drama as we know him. How has the Tiger effect changed now that he's sort of making a comeback? We're coming off of a win a few weeks ago. The drama's behind him. Talk to us about the Tiger effect on sales. Oh, well, on sales, it's great. And uh, on golf in general, in the industry, it's wonderful. You know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And we're anecdotally really happy about what's been going on in the industry since the Masters, only four weeks away. So there's not a lot of data going on, but there's a lot of chatter that he's getting people on the golf course. And that's what we need. We sell golf balls. We need people to go out there and hit those golf balls. And, uh, and so, yeah, we've seen a big boost in sales. And... Um, April was a good month. May's looking good. So we're rolling. And Dan, talk to us about sort of how the PGA fits into the calendar and, you know, what we tend to expect at this point uh, in the season. I mean, this is a storied course that they're going to be playing on, as you say, uh, just down the road from where you're sitting uh, in New York. Talk to us about the tournament. Well, there's a new calendar for the, for the, um, for the majors this year. There's one yeah. every month. And this is the first time the PGA will be played in May rather than typically August. So it's really great for the PGA Championship. It's a great event. Uh, Beth Page is a wonderful, it's a municipal course. So it's very odd for a tournament like this to be played on a municipal course. So that's really cool. 
uh, same course that we can go play and uh, right. I mean, that's such a cool thing that and I, and I remember the last time I was there, you know, that caught a lot of people's attention, especially because golf, uh, dare I say, can be seen as a little bit of an elitist sport. Um, and often, you know, the guys playing at a place like Augusta National or Pebble Beach or someplace that only the the fanciest among us can play. But Beth Page, as you say, that's that's for uh, weekend hackers, as it were. I, it certainly can be and. And then also for the best in the world, Tiger right. won there in 2002, won the U.S. Open. And so he knows the course. He's had success there. So we're, we're, we're expecting big things again. I want to talk about viewership. I think for a while in the past few years, you had talked about how viewership of watching golf had been on the decline. How is viewership correlated with sales? So clearly, I'm assuming you need viewership to rise because that will mean people are playing more, they're buying golf balls. What do you do to get that started all the way back to the beginning with viewership? Well, I mean, obviously, viewership is where it starts. It creates interest. Interest then feeds itself into folks going out and trying the game and and then becoming dedicated loyalists. And that's what we really want to see. So viewership up is great. And Tiger moves the needle like nobody else. So. Well, he does indeed. And speaking of moving the needle, Jason, I want to just bring us some quick headlines um, that we are getting. Perhaps the increase that we're seeing a little bit on the equity markets, some recovery of the losses is a headline coming out saying that Trump says he will meet with China's President Xi Jinping and Russia's Putin at the G20. So perhaps hoping to get a little bit of of a resolution. And Jason, we can actually fold in this trade conversation with our guest here because talk to me about how, if any, some of the trade tensions and the tariffs are impacting your world. Well, yeah, we do have a lot of fun in golf, but we're also a lot about business, and we watch this very, very carefully, as does everyone else. Uh, Fortunately for us, we make our golf balls primarily here in the USA, so we have that going for us and are somewhat insulated from it. But we do buy quite a few of our ancillary products from China, so we're, we're quite concerned with that. Um, good for us in a way is that the golf season is underway. And so we've already stocked up on all of our inventories that we expect to sell for the season. So we're going to, uh, we're going to dodge this bullet, but we're watching it closely. So Dan, just going back to Tiger for a second, because as you say, the last time we talked to you, it was right in the, the flush of the, of the victory. I think, uh, everyone was celebrating, including you, uh, and your team. How has that sort of Tiger bump held up for you as you've seen attention and sales and your ability to really lean into that win since the Masters? Oh, we leaned into it in a big way. We did TV commercials around it, all kinds of commemorative product for retail. So we have seen a a real return on it, and uh, it's been great for us. Like I said, April was awesome. Um, May is looking very good. So it's kind of a combination. The weather finally broke across the country, and we're dependent on that, and as well as Tiger kind of adding – a huge impetus to it. It, it. It's been a wonderful start to the season. So I have to say that there is something to be said for the strategy of doubling down on Tiger and really banking on, you know, one individual really going for it, especially someone like Tiger. What do you make of a strategy to diversify a little bit as well and look at maybe a top 100 golfers or top 50 golfers and really to be looking at some of the new up-and-comers for if or when Tiger goes away, you do have a pipeline of people to really be marketing to. Sort of a, a farm system. We do that. We, <laughs> we do a lot uh, of activity in the colleges uh, looking for the next 
the next Tiger, if you will. And we also have relationships with quite a few other great PGA Tour players that give us a lot of exposure and really help us uh, present our brand story in a great way. Dan Murphy, CEO of Bridgestone, thank you so much. Have a great weekend out at the PGA. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. China has been taking advantage of the United States for many, many years. I'm not just talking about during the Obama administration. Uh, You can go back long before that. And it's been taking out 400, 500, 600 billion dollars a year out of the United States. And we can't let that happen. All right. Well, that was President Trump speaking about this ongoing, really, trade war that we are now in the midst of with China. The last 96 hours or so have been quite interesting as we get propelled further into these negotiations, this standoff. So let's get some context on this. Andy Brown is editorial director of the Bloomberg New Economy. They are, of course, the producers of the Bloomberg New Economy Forum uh, coming up this year for its second annual edition. Andy joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Andy, help us understand. Give us the, the half a step back that might give some context to where we are and where we are in these negotiations and bringing your vast knowledge to this. Yeah, so the Chinese response has been so far quite measured. Uh, I mean, it's been more in sorrow than anger. Mm. Um, They've been really at pains to say that, in their view, the negotiations haven't broken down. And indeed, their retaliatory tariffs don't kick in until June the 1st. And the tariffs on Chinese goods coming into the U.S. don't apply to the goods that are already in shipment. And there is a sailing time, which is a couple of weeks between uh, the Chinese East Coast across the Pacific to the U.S. So there is a window for both sides to take a deep breath and potentially put together a deal. On the other hand, there is also a risk that positions on both sides can harden uh, and that when you get uh, a ratcheting up of threats, tariffs, counter tariffs and so on, the danger is that it's quite difficult for both sides to climb down without uh, appearing weak. And certainly Xi Jinping has no intention of retreating uh, with a gun against his head. I want to get your thoughts on the immediate reaction that we're seeing from the comments that we just heard from the president, of course, coming out and saying that China wants to have a trade deal, uh, but and he does expect, of course, China to retaliate on U.S. farmers and that China has been taking advantage of the U.S. Is that the right approach when we hear those comments from President Trump speaking to China's president? Is that the right tactic to take? Well, look, I mean, everything you just said, um, there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, However, at the same time, what you heard was President Trump repeating this fallacy that the Chinese are going to pay for tariffs, that in effect, uh, you know, he looks at tariffs as being a revenue opportunity for the United States, whereas the reality is that it is a tax on consumers. So the way it actually works mechanistically is that the tariff is paid for by the importer into the United States. So if you take bicycles as an example, there are two or three importers of bicycles from China. They source the bikes from the factories. The factories make a buck out of each bicycle 
tiny, tiny profit margin. They ship it across, they bring it through customs, uh, and then they on-sell it to retailers. Now, they may be able to squeeze a little bit more out of the factories, although there's not much to squeeze from them. They may also be able to charge a higher price to the retailers, and so that is, is a little bit of cushioning there. But in the end, in the end, the tariffs are paid for by U.S. consumers. Now, right now, that hasn't been quite so apparent because the tariffs that the U.S. has applied have been mainly on Chinese industrial products, on parts that go into, into, into industrial products. The next wave, and they're threatening tariffs on another $300 billion of Chinese exports, that will be much more applied to consumer items. And this and, and is a tax on poorer people because poorer people spend a greater proportion of their income on that type of product than the rich do. And so how soon will we see that, Andy? I mean, take us through the supply chain or at least sort of a prediction of of how this plays through for the everyday U.S. consumer and how soon will companies be forced to really start to change their their pricing in a way that, that we feel it? Well, so far, you know, when, when your tariffs are 5, 10, 15 percent, um, you can cushion a lot of that. I mean, yeah. you can take a lot of that uh, out of your profits. And to an extent, the depreciation of the Chinese currency has also masked some of the effect. Uh, once you start getting to 25%, uh, then you really are going to start to notice the difference in the sticker price in the stores. At that point, it's going to become apparent that your bicycle really is now more expensive, your hairdryer, all the other things that you essentially buy in a Walmart. We only have a minute left, uh, but I want to ask how fungible or elastic is manufacturing in China? At what point could we pick up and move from China to Philippines or China to Vietnam to avoid the tariffs? Yeah, so you heard the president say that, that China is going to be hurt because supply chains will pull out of the country and move to other places. And that is true. But don't forget, it's also very difficult to move supply chains. Right. Vietnam doesn't have nearly the infrastructure that China does or the size of the labor force or the ease of doing business or the supply chains. If you're making a hairdryer, you know, in China, yeah. that screw, that plastic nozzle, that fan is made in a factory just around the corner. It's not the right. same in Vietnam. All right. Much more to come. Andy Brown, always grateful to you, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. Lots more coming up on this story. This is Bloomberg. We're on the road to nowhere. Oh, road to nowhere, Jason. And of course, the story that we are talking about today, outside of trade and tariffs in the market, the number one story that you need to know, it is all about Uber. Shares of Uber are uh, down to really the lows of the session. We're at a 36.75, off about 12%, 11.5% today. Uh, so joining me to break all of this down is Joel Weber. He's our editor of Bloomberg Business Week, and Eric Newcomer, our, our reporter really here for Bloomberg News. And you have been following this Uber story Eric, there's about 30 different ways to go. I think my first question is, if Uber is off 11.5% today, is this a broader market story or is there something within Uber going on that is making it clearly much worse than the broader market in today's sell-off? I think it's definitely an Uber story in part. I think there's an argument to make that Uber's so sensitive to market sentiment that there's so many people that are apprehensive about the losses that it really requires sort of uh, it's momentum you know it, people have to believe in the story and so when they're coming out public when there's a lot of skepticism around the story that's going to hurt them much more than the rest of the market and so i think that's the challenge on the one hand yes i think the market triggered some of the pain 
But I think Uber is susceptible to that pain because they lose so much money and it takes a big leap of faith to believe in the stock. And so, Joel, give us the unicorn context here, because, you know, you have both the ability and the challenge and the responsibility to sort of look at this story in a in a more broad way, in a broader way. Uh, how do you approach something like this? Because there's obviously a day to day. But what's the context? Well, the bigger context here, right, are the unicorns who have been uh, in the enchanted forest, if you will, and coming <laughs> to market now, really, for the first time. And and these are companies that uh, don't make money. You know that's the big thing about Uber. They're really good at losing money. In fact, and now uh, you get to basically see what happens when you bring that business model into the public markets. And so that that is something that we're always talking about. Eric, I wanted to ask you about that though specifically because if you're one of the few unicorns still in the enchanted forest, how do you look at what's happening now yeah, and decide question. what what's next? I, I just don't think they're all created equal. You know, Uber and Lyft are particularly expensive business models, and there are specific questions about ride sharing. I mean, you could put WeWork, which is a very different business, but has a similar or worse loss pro- profile in a similar bucket. But I think, you know, we saw Zoom's success. I think even Pinterest has been more resilient. And I think Slack is a very different story than an Uber, you know, it's been able to control its losses. So I think investors are smart. They're going to look at these companies on their own. And so it's interesting sort of as a basket because we're wondering about startup valuations, which often could be really interrelated because you were betting on these companies' business models to totally change over time. But now I think as public companies, it's going to be easier to separate. Okay, this one throws off money. If the market corrects, it will have money. Companies like Uber and Lyft, you know, we'll get to a point where they would need to raise more money. Thankfully, Uber has, you know, $8.1 billion now, so it has some time to figure things out. But I think it's going to be the ones that have balance sheets that can sustain them and ones that, that, that don't. And, and how do you think the market is viewing the Lyft-Uber thing? Them as separate companies. Obviously, Lyft got out there first. Right. And a lot of maybe the downward pressure on Uber now is because – Lyft had some earnings that weren't so great. So so now they're kind of, you know, peers and they're getting to be judged in the public. It's one of the most same. fascinating questions, certainly frustrating for Uber that for so long they were sort of way above Lyft. And now I think there are people who think Lyft should have a better revenue premium than Uber because Lyft focuses in the United States, which should be more profitable. It has a better growth portfolio and its core business. You know, Uber has obviously this international business as Eats, but it's it's struggled to keep ride sharing growing. So it is this great debate among sort of the wonks and the analysts right now about, okay, whatever ride sharing is worth, what's the right ratio between the two companies? And so we're sort of watching that get figured out. I don't think there's a clean answer. I think, you know, it sort of matters how much more do you think Lyft can eat into Uber? How much more do you think ride-sharing can grow overall in the United States? And those are big, tough questions. Eric, what is the path to profitability? You brought up, smartly, the balance sheet of Uber. It's a company that has negative free cash flow of $2 billion. Yes, as of last year, they had $6 billion of cash on their balance sheet, but they're burning through CapEx. When do we see profitability, and why isn't there more pressure on them to be profitable? Lyft has been more clear that they want 2019 to be peak losses, which isn't that reassuring if they're just going to, okay, it's basically a billion in 
uh, last year, this will be the worst, and then maybe it'll be slight, you know, still losing money. Uh, but there isn't a clear answer for what the story is. You know, I'm going to throw out. I'm not self-driving cars is not the answer, and I think the companies would see it as more of an option. The answer has to be, you know, keep growing top line to the extent that it swamps things like R and D. It has to be cut insurance costs, you know, and it has to be reduced subsidies and driver bonuses. And those things will make drivers less happy and could hurt to, you know, if if you're competing in New York, it might mean you're going to the subway instead of taking ride yeah. So there are huge questions of what cutting losses means for the companies. It's a story we're going to keep talking about well into the future. Eric Newcomer, Joel Weber, thank you both. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Taylor Riggs here with you on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Ann Maletti, she is Senior Portfolio Manager for Wells Fargo Asset Management. They oversee $466 billion. She joins us from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. And great to have you back with Taylor Riggs and myself. All right. Gotta ask you right off the top: China trade, U.S. stocks, global stocks. What do you do? Well, I think it's time for everybody just to take a deep breath as we head into the close. Um, try to keep some perspective. I don't think anyone thought a trade deal with China would happen easily. That it would take a smooth or a straight path. There was going to be some bumps along the road, and clearly, this is a big bump. So um, I think we just have to take a little bit of a breather. The market certainly was optimistic that there was going to be a deal. And a lot of that had to come out of the market today. Probably will continue a little bit to reprice the fact that a deal is now on hold. So, Anne, with this repricing that we expect to see not only today, but like you mentioned, perhaps within the coming days as well, talk to me about the courage to stay invested. Panicked people want to sell, go to cash. That's probably not the thing to do. At what point is this a buying opportunity for you? Yeah, you know, it is such an important point, Taylor. I think the market always wants to trick you to do the wrong thing, and that's to act on emotion. And what we try to do when there's a lot of volatility in the market is to play against that emotion and really just take a deep breath today. And then if we see stocks really get mispriced and overcorrect, take advantage of that market emotion. Um, really, the cash flow streams of companies are less volatile than the stock prices. So what we're looking for is watching for stocks that dislocate and get overpriced or overcorrect it from their cash flow streams. Now, it is fair to say, you know, we've had double digit returns already this year. So pretty healthy returns. The market wasn't necessarily cheap. Um, we've had some good things going on and the economy was in pretty good shape. But, 
you know, the market wasn't necessarily or the stocks weren't necessarily cheap. So I wouldn't mind seeing a little bit more of a correction. Up to a 10% correction could give really good entry into some stocks and um, specifically stocks that we would look at would be companies that have good pricing power regardless of some of these big macro concerns. And so let's talk about some of those companies and take us down to the level where your team is analyzing who fits into that description uh, that you laid out. Yeah. So, you know, what we look for are companies that, you know, have good secular trends um, and then good growth and sometimes even good brands that can help protect pricing. So um, Waste Connections is maybe not a name that everybody is well aware of, but it operates in the waste business. So Waste Management, Republic, Waste Connections, you know, those are all fairly stable businesses that their pricing generally follows economic growth and tend to be very, very stable business models, not really reliant on um, the the global economy. Um, so those are businesses that we like and generally can hold pricing fairly well unless you go into a deep recession. Um, you know, S&P Global is another one that I think of, clearly one that will get hit in the near term, but some very strong, iconic brands. S&P is a name that, you know, most even all all investors that are in the market know S&P and that brand translates into price and power and more durable revenues even during the downstream and it's a company that produces significant free cash flow generation so we like that more importantly would be companies that have really strong secular trends so the tower companies American Tower SBA Communications are other companies that we like that have really good growth reoccurring revenues, they even pay dividends, have very low CapEx, and as mobile data usage continues to grow, the need for network investments also continues to grow to satisfy that demand. So you can tell that those companies are pretty well isolated from some of those trends that are happening with China today. Um, and some of the other global impacts. And that's and what we're looking for. When you talk about pricing power, we talk about companies being able to pass on that higher cost of goods sold onto the consumer. And for most of the earnings season, like you said, we've seen the gross margins really hold in there. So you see companies mm-hmm. like a Procter & Gamble and a Kimberly-Clark see higher costs and really be able to pass those on to the consumer. Mm-hmm. With these tariffs, at what point are they no longer able to pass on the costs to the consumer, and if you start to see cracks in the gross margin, is that the point at which you get nervous about the consumer? Well, I do think there's going to be companies that can continue to do that, and there will be companies that will have to start to pass that along to the consumer. And so that's why I'm focusing on certain companies, and that's why we're, we will look across all of our portfolios. And as we look for new ideas, look to focus on the names that we think still have the ability to price that to, you know, price that down to the consumers and mostly to other businesses. Um, and certainly there will be companies that are more impacted. The consumer product companies won't be as well isolated. And, and we can see that what happened in the last down cycle. If you go back to Q4 of 18, you know, we can take 
the playbook about what happened during the fourth quarter. Certainly, you know, we're at different valuation levels, but a lot of that playbook in Q4 will tell us a little bit about what could happen during these latest tariff wars. Last 30 seconds or so, and how much is your phone ringing from clients at a moment like this who are worried about the China trade, sort of going all the way back to, to Taylor's initial question? I think institutional clients are pretty um, pretty calm yet. You know, they have their asset allocations where they want to be and are pretty calm about riding this through and just waiting it out. I think, you know, other investors are a little bit more cautious. It's, it's harder when you're investing your money in your 401k to just look through this because we're all focused on, you know, how much we have saved for our retirement. And as we know, most of us don't have enough saved. And so these blips in the market do cause us to want to act. And as Taylor pointed out in the beginning, sometimes react incorrectly. Right. So it is a bigger concern, I would say, for the retail market. Um, but I would I would just say to folks, pay more attention to your allocation. All right, Ann Valetti, thank you so much. Wells Fargo Asset Management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.